This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about a scary uh, cell phone fire that happened on Alaska Airlines and some of the unique methods that their crew and their company in general have developed to mitigate those uh, lithium-ion battery risks uh, in the cabin. We'll talk about a Viasat uh, potential Wi-Fi problem on some 737s. And we'll also chat a little bit about some good news that Emirates uh, Airlines is reestablishing uh, pre-COVID salary levels and benefits as of October. And then our EVTOL segment, we're going to chat about Dufour. They have a uh, tilt wing design EVTOL that looks pretty promising. And we'll also chat through a little bit more Archer news lately. So, uh, Alan, talking about cell phone fires, um, this seems really scary. And so Alaska Airlines has developed uh, in-house this crazy, um, it's like a, a a thing for their crew where they basically have these two high temperature what look like silver oven mitts and this pouch that they can deposit a, a cell phone if it blows up um, not necessarily blows up but if it catches fire um, is this something that it seems like this should have been in existence a long time ago but it seems like alaska airlines is kind of on the forefront of this is that how you read the article yeah and i haven't ever seen that type of technology on an airplane before which is weird because i usually see all those oddball things but the cell phone fire bag is a new is a new one to me, and it must come along with some level of training for the flight attendants because I can't imagine in your first time there's a cell phone fire you're going to put those oven mitts on, start grabbing at a flaming cell phone. I'm not sure I, that would be my first thing to go do. So it must involve some training, and uh, it, it in this particular case because they had a, a cell phone fire on an aircraft on the ground and they everybody hopped out on the fire escapes. It makes a lot of sense to have something to engulf the, the fire so you don't, in a sense, set other things on fire in the cabin, which would be even a worse fire. So this is really an interesting proactive uh, device system that, that, it, that I have not seen on other airlines. Yeah, and it looks like the bag um, was made by Baker Aviations or Baker Aviation. It's called the Hot Stop L, and it's proven fireproof up to 3,200 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is crazy. Um, and, and the, and the, you know, we're referring to them as oven mitts, but that's what they look like. They just look like gloves, obviously, but they remind me similar to what you'd see, uh, workers like a foundry, you know, they wear when they're like stoking the flames or handling anything like they have these huge fireproof mitts. And, uh, so it sounds like, you know, this company Baker aviation, along with, uh, Alaska airlines worked together to, to get that done. But, yeah, so apparently, I mean, the big challenge of lithium-ion fires is just how hot they burn, that they get really, really hot. And so they said in this article that previously crew would have to just find a place for it somewhere on board and just, like, put it somewhere, which is <laughs> just crazy to think about. But, yeah, I guess you can't anticipate everything. The scary thing is thing I, I would assume is that if, if you don't have any training in it, my first response would be to flush it. You know, to try to get it somewhere and douse it in water, and which is not going to really do anything in a lithium fire. But that that would be my first 
instinct, I think everybody's first instinct is to hit it with water, throw some ice on it or something. <laughs> but it really, yeah, it really wouldn't do anything in that case. And uh, it would probably endanger loads of passengers at the same time. So this is a really interesting solution. And isn't it odd that we've never seen this before? I've never seen it. Yeah. And it, it also just strikes me as strange that it could burn that hot, 32, up to 3,200 degrees. That's what the bags can withstand and not melt. But then again, there's a lot of fabrics that, you know, we've been discussing uh, fiberglass and composites. There's a lot of materials that look like a fabric that can't melt. So uh, I think that's just kind of a perception thing. But I mean, I know like on a cabin, there's obviously as much as made out of metal as possible, uh, you know, within reason because you don't want to make the plane heavy but you see all the things that need to last 20 years all the little you know knobs and things that would be ordinarily made of something cheaper are made of you know aluminum or something really durable so you think there would be some metal cabinet you could throw one of these in but then again 3200 degrees could probably melt aluminum i don't know the uh melting point of aluminum offhand do you, do you? yeah it's above it's above the melting point of aluminum in fahrenheit i think that is yeah i think the melting point of yeah, I think it is. Off the top of my head, I think that it is. Yeah, but it, it's so hot that I think in a cabin area, it's not so much the pieces that are certified with the airplane. It's all the other things that come into the cabin, which are uh, paperwork, books, things that readily burn. And if you happen, like a lot of people do or are traveling, if you have a bunch of paperwork and you have your cell phone in your bag and the cell phone lights up and it lights off the paperwork in the bag, now you have a really a serious situation because smoke inside a cabin is not a good thing and you, you're, you're immediately declaring an emergency, right? And, and so getting this thing squashed as fast as you can is the right way to go. And I, I, it's, I, I think... Part of this is I've never seen this used on a business aircraft, and I would think that a business aircraft like a Cessna Citation or a Gulfstream 5 or a Bombardier, um, like a 7500 or something like that, w would have the same issue just because the if you have a cell phone catch fire, it doesn't regard, regardless of what the airplane type is, that's a big deal. Yeah. That's fa it's, it's just fascinating to see this. Yeah, well, and what's also interesting about this flight was that this battery fire broke out shortly after landing. So they were done, which is, I'm sure, to the relief of everyone, this didn't happen at 30,000 feet. But at the same time, it seems like also just so such a weird timing that, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're like so close to the bathroom and you just like just can't make it like the phone just couldn't make it, you know, to get out of the. Uh, but, you know, and so they had to evacuate the uh, thing. But you wonder what would happen if this was at at height um and of course what's interesting is they have not just like a small bag they also have a bigger bag for the crew uh for the pilots to have their laptops in in case this happens so it seems like it's a pretty going to be a probably a ubiquitous solution going forward rather than having some you know because what do they have in the belly of the plane alan don't they have like a they have a fire smoke alarms they have smoke alarms and sometimes there's some fire suppression down there depends on what kind of airplane it is but yeah but if if the smoke alarms go off in the cargo area, you have a serious problem. You need to get to the ground as fast as you can because you're never really sure, one, if you can extinguish it, if there's an extinguishing system, and two, how long you have, right? So it's, it's a problem. Well, my last question to you is I know the planes turn over their uh, indoor air really, really fast, like every two minutes. Because um, it seems like the fumes are one of the really big issues here, right? I mean, you have crazy toxic fumes coming out of a battery 
um, just burning until it's out. So that's my other thing. I'd love to see this bag in action. Like, what does it do with all the fumes? Because there's going to be expanding gas, right? I don't really know how that works. Like, wouldn't it just get to the point where it would burst and fumes would come out? Or maybe fumes can't be contained in it? The, the fumes are not going to be contained in it, and it'll, they'll come out. What, what tends to happen in fire situations that you want to remove smoke from the cabin and cockpit and so the, there's a bleed air system which pressurized the cabin. You want to just unload that. And so you're just going to basically get yourself down to an altitude and you can just let the cabin pressurization go and just push as much volume of air through the cabin and cockpit to clear the smoke out. That, that's, the, that's the trick to it is that you just want to get to maximum airflow to shove the smoke out so you can see. Because if you can't see, you really can't save yourself. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. So... Yeah, pretty crazy situation, but it's good to see there's interesting new tech that's mitigating these these scary. I mean, but I mean that could have happened, like I said, could have happened in the middle of the flight. Thankfully, it didn't. All right, so moving on, um, interesting article about uh, Viasat Wi-Fi radomes that are being removed uh, from LL commercial airliners um, from their 737 jets. So it sounds like, uh, you know, obviously Viasat providing Wi-Fi on these flights, it sounds like this could potentially cause damage to the fuselage and the FAA is requiring these to be pretty much taken off immediately. Alan, this sounds like the FAA is moving pretty fast about this. It's not just like a advisory. It's really just like a, hey, these need to get removed ASAP. I mean, is that how you uh, see the situation? Yeah, the the article about this allow uh, situation was really interesting because you don't typically see the FAA mandate a removal of a of a component or or in this case almost a piece of structure off the aircraft uh, usually there's an inspection done on the aircraft that are in service that may have this the same installation because the issue is cracking and if you're on an aluminum fuselage and you've installed something relatively heavy on top of it and you bolted it into the airframe structure, what you're looking for is if there's any flexing or fatigue that's happening, it's causing cracking because eventually that'll let loose. And in this particular case, the radome could come off and hit, hit things behind you like the vertical stabilizer, which would all be bad. But on others, other uh, installations, what I think what has been done when they've seen this sort of fatigue-related vibration, and I think this is somehow vibration-related to aerodynamics, uh, what they've done is sort of stiffened up the structure to, to alleviate it or to fix the aerodynamic problem. I've not seen mandated removal of an installation, which so this is going into a different territory. And, and until we get more details on it, we're not going to know for sure. But so you would think structurally you'd be able to put <laughs> you'd be able to repair this or modify the installation to bring it into compliance why uh, the sort of forced removal is fascinating. Now, it, it did sound like LL had found the cracks themselves and identified it and, and alerted everybody about it, which is the right way things are done. If you do see this generic problem, and it, if it's beyond one aircraft, you see it in two or three aircraft, you need to alert people because this may be something a little bit wider. And they did do that. But What's driving the removal, and are they going to be able to put put another system on? Is the air is the airframe not able to support this kind of load? Which is all this is just bizarre because I know having worked on these aircraft 
radome installations, I know there's a lot of work done and analysis done on the structural implications of this of this massive radome structure going on on a little support structure. There's a lot of structural analysis that happens. So it's surprising that uh, the FAA would say you, you missed so far that on the analysis and structural view that you got to pull the system off. That that's what it feels like now. But that that would just seem really unusual. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like you said, good good for LL for catching it um, just through routine inspection. Because otherwise, that that would be my question to you: is like how how do they figure out some of these things? You know, if this was. So they, this article says that no U.S. registered aircraft are carrying this technology, so there's no U.S. carriers uh, affected. Um, but, I mean, like, they don't just disassemble all these planes just in routine maintenance. I mean, how, how rare would it be, like, if this was cracking and this was a widespread problem, would this just be something that could go unchecked? It wouldn't go unchecked for very long. There's, there's certain intervals in which the airframe has to be inspected, and that involves really disassembly. I mean, at, at some points, there are some levels of inspection where you're pulling the engines off, you're emptying the fuel tanks, you're, you're taking all the interior out and looking for things like this, cracks. And if and particularly on these radomes, if you think about the way that the radomes go on top of the airplane, they kind of cover all the structural fittings and interfaces. You really can't see you can't see them from the outside. The only way to, to see them is to pull the radome off and look in or to go inside the cabin and start taking off all the head, headliners and all the accoutrements that, <laughs> that make up a cabin and look in and try to see if you can see the crack so there have been some standard check and every every radome installation like that has a maintenance manual that comes along with it that that defines when you need to go look and what kind of inspections you're going to perform and what at what intervals you're going to perform them so my guess is that L Al was just doing routine inspections that's called out in the maintenance manual and they saw this this issue pop up now I guess there's another question about it is you know how much time is on the airframe is it a airframe issue that the airframes are older and maybe they can't support these kind of installations because the airframes are older that may be part of it too so it may not necessarily be that the installation is bad as much as the combination of the installation of the radon plus the airframe age um, leads to these kind of problems well some good news uh, emirates is set to reinstate employee salaries and benefits so it looks like they are maybe through the tough part of the, uh, the pandemic and they are ready to give people back their full salaries. Uh, Cause I know a lot of companies, you know, gave just a reduction. Um, obviously there were some layoffs, some furloughs, some firings, all that. Um, but it looks like, uh, UAE is ready to, to get back to normal. Is this a sign that all these airlines are going to start to follow suit or is this maybe just an outlier? I, I think they're trying to get back up to speed as much as they possibly can. If you look at the, the the TSA numbers for the number of people actually going through security, which gives you a sense of how many people are flying, I think we're at like 70%, 75%, somewhere in there in the United States. We're still down a good 20 to 30%. And I, and I would guess that extends worldwide. I think uh, in terms of just retaining employees and having a functioning organization, you're going to have to have – there is some minimum level in which to operate an airline. And beyond that, below that, you're just not functioning safely. Uh, 
and I, a lot of airlines did reduce salaries temporarily. There was a lot of going back and forth. And in the, particularly in the United States, the federal government stepped in and provided funding to the airlines so they could keep employees on staff. I think UAE and Emirates and all the others are, are trying to do the same thing. Outlook, I, I think, Dan, this is sort of more of a play looking forward a little bit because if, if you bring in back employees and bring them back to full salary, there's the anticipation that the airlines can be operating at 90-ish percentile of where they were previously. I'm not sure we're quite there yet with this Delta variant going around. Um, when we're going to be there, it's looking like the end of this year, December 2021, January 2022 is when things may start to feel a little more normal. Uh, but it is a good sign. I just haven't seen that sort of um, step up in airlines in the United States yet. And I think there's a lot of like Air France and Lufthansa and some of the others are, are starting to come up, but maybe not to that level yet. Yeah. You know, I know the U.S. seems to be recovering and flights are going up, but they're still not. I mean, I think one of the bigger things here in the U.S. is that a lot of flight attendants are exhausted. A lot of the overall airline crew are just exhausted. And, you know, there's been some some public uh, backlash against Southwest recently that people were just overworked and fed up at the way the company is not really showing support for them. And I think that's been a common thread throughout many, many industries, air, you know, commercial air included. Um, so I think people are much, I shouldn't say they're more likely to tolerate bad treatment when they're fully paid, but they certainly are. Um, you hope to be treated extremely well no matter what, but if you're not, then you at least hope to be being paid for, well for it. Um, but obviously you want both. So, but, but yeah, I mean, hopefully this trend continues. I know one, uh, another global airline, Etihad is not, they are continuing with pay cuts. So they are not ready to, to throttle back up to full salaries. So at least for right now, I guess we'll have to kind of wait and see. Yes. All right. So in our EVTOL segment today, first we're going to talk about Dufour. Um, they have got a tilt wing concept that they say is, is comes with less risk than other designs because this one has been sort of proven out over the years. Uh, very similar to a Canada Air CL84 Dynavert, which was manufactured between 1964 and 1973. So for me, if they made a successful plane back, you know, 50 odd years ago or 60 odd years ago, um, then that does lend some positive feelings for me. If they could do it then with all the technology we have today, then we could certainly make something work here. So it's it's a shiny new prototype. Um, looks like a standard helicopter, obviously has this big long wing with six propellers that tilts up for uh, vertical takeoff and then tilts down um, to an extent. Alan, I mean, with these tilt wings, is this going to tilt? It's not going to tilt down completely because this is not a plane. This is more of a, a helicopter. But w what do you know about this design? Well, at least what I've seen of it online is that the wing actually gets to a vertical. The, 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 there's a fixed the motors are actually fixed to the to the wing and the wing tilts right so as the wing tilts up you get this vertical helicopterish takeoff system and then it it transitions forward the little trick here and i think why they could do it back in the 60s and 70s is the relationship between the airflow coming off the propellers and the wing remains fixed right the only only variable in this in this is sort of the forward and or vertical tilt of the wing slash motors 
if you're doing it non-electric, it gets really complicated because you got these motors and you got this all this inertia and things are spinning and it can get a little more complicated. But um, in some of these more simpler designs, and then we can use computers to to make things simpler. Uh, there is some aerodynamic uh, simplification that happens. So instead of moving the propellers re- relative to the wing, everything moves together, which is probably a little more solvable of a problem. The question is, you know, mechanically, do you want to do that? Does it add a lot of extra mechanisms and actuators and control system laws and all this um, other pieces that back in the 70s, you would just had a, a big lever and you would have pulled it and the, the whole mechanism would have turned. Now you're going to do the, a bunch of hydraulic electric actuators to do it. And do you create additional fault modes? Are there bad things that happen here? Are there additional load paths that can get stressed over time? Because I, I think... In any EVTOL, especially so the variety of we're going to see here in the next two to three years, they're all taking different tacks, Dan. They're all got different approaches, and we we don't really have any data on structural capability. Like what what does this thing look like structurally? Like with the seven thirty seven and, and the Vice that thing, uh, you don't really know on uh, because you haven't the air, air loads are different, the way it flies is different. Are you going to see? Uh, air, aircraft that have been certified struggle because of additional inspections, because they're finding cracks and all these fatigue, fatigue paths. I, I think that's a, a very open avenue at the moment just because we don't know what we don't know. We haven't flown a lot of aircraft that have all these unique motors moving, propellers twisting kind of designs. We don't have any history on it. And the one thing about the FAA is that, and EASA for that matter, is reliability and showing that you got a very reliable system. And a lot of that has to do with flight history. And if you don't have any flight history on the design, you're just learning as you go, which is not a great way to do it. Uh, the FAA is giving more latitude on these Part 23 smaller aircraft. But still, there's going to be winners and losers based upon how reliable the system you've created. Uh, and Dan, I think it's a lot like the Elon Musk on the SpaceX, where they have a different design than like uh, Jeff Bezos does or what Boeing is doing on the United Launch Alliance. They all have slightly different variations on the same concept, like going into space. Right? We all we all have our little approaches to it. Some of them work, some of them don't. And really, the only way you can find out is to start flying them, launching them, and then, and then figure it out from there. And, and even in the Musk situation with SpaceX, how many air spacecraft hit the hit the you know hit South Texas and exploded recently be, when they didn't have the really control laws figured out? A lot, right? And, and you don't you don't want to see that with aircraft in particular, which I I, I think in in the eVTOL world uh, we're not putting pilots in them. And most of them yet. Uh, so if they do go haywire and you have some structural or control system problem, if it hits the desert, it hits the desert. It's not great, but at least no one's getting injured. And I think that's one of the reasons why is that we don't have a lot of experience on these type structures yet. Yeah, and that is a that is a, a positive where it seems like a lot of these EVTOL companies, Joe B., um, Volcopter recently. Well, Volcopter did their tests with uh, people inside, but they seem to mostly all have the capability to fly by themselves. So that really takes a lot of the risk out of it, which is which is great. Right, which is smart. So last on the docket today, Archer Aviation, which has obviously been in this big public battle with Whisk, 
Um, they've made an announcement that they're going public. Uh, of course, they committed to, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if committed is the right word, but they had partnered with uh, Atlas Crest Investment Corp., which is a SPAC. Um, but they are planning to go uh, public in a month with them through that SPAC, that SPAC merger. And, you know, at, at, you know, with all the legal issues that have been going on, they could have said, yeah, we're going to pull out. We're going to wait on this. But they've said, no, no, we're going ahead. We're, we're good. And, and we're going to do this thing and go public. So, um, Alan, do you feel like this is the right move for Archer Aviation? I think you have to because of the amount of money you have to raise, which is astounding <laughs> amount of money. You're talking about a billion dollars. That's what you need to, to get successfully through the certification effort. And if you're going to do this Uber flight type of uh, passenger service, you're going to need that kind of cash. And I don't think unless you make it public, you're going to have the opportunity to raise that kind of money. I, I, there, there is always people willing to invest in these things. But when you're talking, if you, it, was, it was just back this out. If you needed to raise $100 million for a project, I think in today's environment, it's not super hard to go do that, depending on what the what the marketplace is. When you're talking about a billion dollars, uh, that's a little different thing. And I do think you're going to need outside investment. You're going to need a lot of small investors or institutional investors to come in, and they, don't have a, they didn't have a vehicle to go do that. Now they do. Now they do, and you know one of the interesting thing is is there's there's that whole push for SPACs, and it seems like a lot of aerospace companies jumped into that SPAC uh, method of of getting to the marketplace and, and getting it public. That's that's how they're doing it, and now the, it seems like it's getting poo pooed by the industry. There's uh, a lot of outs, uh, out, other types of companies have looked at SPACs and been told, no, you're not going to do that. So it's aerospace is such a conservative marketplace typically it's weird to see it in a, in a place where other highly aggressive type businesses can't get into a SPAC because it's it's not looked upon favorably at this particular moment and there's a lot of reasons to do it and there's some not to do it but wouldn't you think like it's more silicon valley-ish things be SPACs because it's it's a way to jump start the the cash flow for the business and aerospace typically has been so conservative, they've never done it. And it's like, there's been a reversal, this weird financial reversal on the small aircraft going to SPAC, other uh, internet type businesses not going SPAC. That, that's, that's fascinating. I, I just watched, I just watched, uh, I'm watching slide bean videos uh, when they were talking about SPACs and how SPACs are not looked upon kindly at the moment. And that, 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 well, that's weird <laughs> because there's a couple of, billion dollars in that marketplace today. So no matter what others think of it, it's it's going to be around for a while. And even the SEC is, I think, have you seen some things from the SEC looking at SPACs going, hmm, we're not so sure this is a good idea. It's a little too late for that. The SEC, in my opinion, needs to be ahead of that by like a year or two. Feels like we're in this odd place where the SEC is playing catch up to what the industry is doing and not really... Um, having any input into it it's like it happened sec's coming back and go oh maybe maybe not that's a good idea but it's sort of too late what are you going to do you can't undo those those large investment groups because they're already formed i guess we're going to see how this goes but it it, it is it just feels very un aerospace at the moment and 
maybe it's the right thing to do. Maybe we should have been doing it years ago. We're just going to have to <laughs> see how see how it goes. Yeah, well, I know the. Um, it seems like there's a a timeout with uh, a lot of these SPACs where they have two years from when they. I don't know if it's whether they announce a merger or when this SPAC comes into existence. I can't when they announce existence into yeah. They have to get investment. Right. Exactly. And if they don't get to that two, at, at the end of that two years, if they haven't merged, then they have to give the money back to investors. Uh, however, it beyond just the two years, it seems like if they don't get this, like find a dance partner pretty quick that they just sort of like, they're not hot anymore and no one wants to, no one wants to dance with them. So it's like, there's a, there's a very, maybe like six months or so where they need to find their acquisition. Otherwise it's just like, well, I don't know. It's like almost like they're damaged goods or something. So it seems like there's a, yeah, there's a, beyond the two years, there's a, an even faster ticking clock for them. Right. Where they got to get going. But I, I, am I off on this? But that little window of opportunity is hard for investors because let's say there's a hundred SPACs being created and they, none of them have connected up with a future company. Which one do you invest in? You just don't know. And it's, it's sort of like going to Vegas and playing the roulette table. You know, you may put your money down on on a specific number and it, it may come up. But, you know, who's going to invest in the next EVTL company? Who knows? Because there's a lot of SPACs that are out there they could use. Well, that's going to do it for uh, this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.